Today I have with me John von Diffel and James Norton, both passionate swimmers, both who work in the arts. John von Diffel is an author and dramaturge in Berlin, and James Norton is a film documentary maker in London. John's acclaimed novels include Vom Wasser, From the Water, and Wasser und andere Welten, Geschichten von Schwimmen und Schreiben, Water and Other Worlds, Stories of Swimming and Writing, and has adapted into German Charles Sprawson's magnificent book, Haunts of the Black Masseur, The Swimmer as Hero. James's work includes two related films on the Japanese artist Hokusai for the British Museum and BBC Television, and another one on Gauguin, again for BBC Television, much of it having been shot in Tahiti, the Marquesas Islands, and in New Zealand. I've highlighted James's and John's water-related works, but I should emphasize they both know about and have a much greater range of interests and works to their credit. Both James and John have a passion for arts, imagery, and letters. Both have a passion for the water and for swimming. Both have a passion and deep interest in Charles Sprawson's classic book on swimming. John van Diffel, James Norton, welcome to Swimming Pod. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. How did your passion for swimming begin, James? I think like all passions, you're not really aware of how they begin until you're up to your neck in them and it's too late. I was um, spent a few years as my childhood living in Denmark. Um, my parents moved there and we had a house by the sea. Before that, we were living in London. I used to go down to spend hours on the beach, the beautiful clear sea just across from Sweden near Copenhagen. So that's probably what started it. And also at the same time, my passion for the sea and the swimming in open water from the, from the very outset. Uh, John, how about you? Yeah, I really can't tell when my passion began, but I know when it was interrupted and probably this interruption or disruption is telling uh, what the intensity of this passion is. And I started out as a long distance swimmer, um, starting in, in competitions. And um, that was in my early ages, well, I, till I got 16 years old. And after a certain amount of development, my coaches said, there's a stalemate. It's not going forward anymore. You're not getting better. It was a very hard time for me because I realized I would never can make my passion so go so far with my passion to be a professional. And so I quit and refrained from swimming for a certain time. And this was really what I sensed was a kind of swimming blockade. I was blocked from swimming and only to overcome all the frustration of not being as good as I should be, as I felt. After certain, certain years passed by, I realized that I really can't live without swimming. And so I got back to swimming and the, the way I found back had to do with literature, actually. I was uh, kind of discovering the poetry and not only the time or the achievement, but to get to kind of poetic connection to the water. And that was my restarting this passion. And this passion continues without a break. So where are your favorite places to swim and why, John? I need swimming every day. So I'm always looking for something very nearby. And living in Potsdam, which is a city of with very many lakes and with quite a lot of water, it is that we have very close to our house um, uh, what we call in German Baggersee. It's a, not a natural lake. It's a lake that came to existence because people took the sand away and built houses or autobahns. So it's not a natural lake, but it's a very pure fundamental water. It's uh, not very beautiful, but it's, I love it because it's not so such a beauty. It's just a hardworking, <laughs> hardworking little lake. James. 
Well, as you and I are members of the Serpentine Club, Stanley, and I try and go there nearly every day, not least because of the people there, as well as the, the actual physical location in the middle of the city is, is quite striking. In general, I enjoy swimming in the sea um, when you get this real momentous sense of the forces of the tides and the currents and the, uh, the life of the sea, of this, a certain amount of clarity, you can see the, the wildlife and the, the seaweed and so forth flowing around you. Uh, likewise, in, in, in rivers as well, swimming for a certain stretch is the Thames not far out of London where you can swim up. Um, again, it's completely surrounded by trees and you have your sense you're right out in the open countryside um, kind of away from everything but uh, again in the central channel of life of the life of man. So what's your best swim ever, James? Again, it's hard to tell. There are certain places I've swum in the sea which have been particularly beautiful. There's um, in the British Isles um, I had swam around some of the silly isles um, a few years ago. Um, you get these wonderful white sand beaches, just around water, and um, it's actually through a garden, marvelous undersea um, flora in particular, um, and a nice sort of moderate temperature, not too cold or too warm. Also, off the west coast of Canada, one of my favorite spots is um, there's called Long Beach, uh, west of Vancouver Island, which is about as far as you can go in Canada, just the west. Wonderful wild um, beach against um, a rainforest, and believe that. You get fantastic anemones, wonderfully coloured um, starfish, and, and um, kelp forests. Um, that's a really, really. What about you, John? What's your best swim ever? Actually, every swim is is good in a way, but the best probably was two or three years ago in uh, Austria, the Weissensee, the White Lake, it's called, but it's not white. It's actually Caribbean-like blue, 20 or so kilometers long. I didn't do such a long swim for quite a while, so it was unusual to me to do it again. And I had the strong sense that while I was swimming through this beautiful Austrian alpine woods and, and hills, at the beginning, I was swimming kind of into the future. In the middle, I was swimming in the present time. In the second half, I was swimming in the past. And I never had such a strong sense of kind of traveling through time while swimming. And so this probably was the best sensation in swimming. But it's not so beautiful as the places <laughs> James told us about. James, how did you find swimming in the Pacific Islands when you were filming Gauguin? If I travel working on um, documentaries, I always seek out as I'm sure open water swimmers of any walk of life do. Where, am I, where can I find somewhere to swim? Look out for whether it's a pool or ideally somewhere to swim in open water. And you often find yourself jumping into um, ponds or um, <laughs> ditches or bits of very shallow brackish seawater to get your swimming fix in. Very fortunately, when I was um, covering on um, a documentary filming about the life of Paul Gauguin, um, I had this opportunity to swim in Tahiti with beautiful crystalline seas, coral reefs, tropical fish, sort of classic paradisal underwater flora and fauna um, comparable to the kind of scenes that Gauguin was painting of the island and the people. In the Marquesas Island where he ended his life and where he was buried is a very different kind of environment, very rocky, rough seas, or volcanic I guess it is, dark sand and, and, and black opaque water. In a way it was more interesting and more invigorating to swim there because there were these massive waves breaking on this main beach of the island where he used to live. I thought, well, I'd like to swim in there. It looks um, potentially dangerous, which is always a bit of a thrill and a challenge, but you've got to be careful. Um, but I noticed there were quite a lot of kids kind of surfing there from the local village. I think, well, if it's all right for them, I can probably get in. <laughs> so I climbed, um, climbed over the rocks and 
and had a very enjoyable swim. It was one of those cases where you could really feel the swell of the ocean. And because it's the middle of the Pacific, and because it actually, I think, the most remote from any any continental um, landmass on Earth, you really do get the sense of that absolute gigantism of the ocean. And it's, it's a very thrilling and pleasurable. Now, can I turn to your worst spins ever? And, and John, you, know, you probably want to forget them, but... Uh, no, I think there's, uh, there's one thing true about swimming. Unless you drown, every swim is good in a way. Actually, just because we, we're talking about swimming and also Charles Sprawson, I had an invitation to join a documentary about channel swimming and was swimming in the port of Dover, And it was very, very cold, really cold. And I will never forget that after trying to impress people and staying in the cold as long as I could, I, I hardly made it out of the water because my legs were numb. And a very um, red, sanguine-looking British channel swimmer came to me and said, you have to wear a bath cap, young man. I was younger at that time. So this probably was not the worst swim, but it was the best lesson I ever got swimming in cold water. Yeah, what about you, James? This is hilarious. Mine's exactly the same. I was at that place at Dover Harbour is an awful place. And the training for channel swimming is, is, is much uh, more unpleasant than this, the swim itself. I, was, um, I did a qualifying swim for a channel relay, which means you've got to swim for two hours. It's within the first year that I'd been a uh, proper open water swimming. Quite early in the season, it was very cold. And I really had to push myself. It was very, very cold winds. And I was, uh, it was quite rough. And I was really not enjoying it at all. Finally, um, at the end, made it through the two hours. Obviously, people recognize the signs. So I, I crawled up onto the beach and completely zoned out. And uh, luckily, there were a lot of channel swimmers around who recognized the symptoms of hypothermia and intervened um, very effectively. I was bundled up um, into a, a coat, put into a little tent. I, I was sick. Um, it was really nasty. Within half an hour, I was okay again, but it was um, very unpleasant not to be repeated. And luckily, I didn't have to repeat the qualifying swim. So, yeah, Dover Harbour is a nasty place. I'd like to turn now to Charles Sprawson's book. Uh, I'd invite you to read an extract that you like. Um, James, would you go first? Sure. So this is from the very the introduction of the book. In fact, Sporson's talking about his childhood. His father traveled the world. He was a schoolmaster of some kind, I think, teaching in English schools. And they started off in Pakistan and India. And then they moved to Libya. And this is um, early on. He says, For some years we lived in Benghazi, not far from the old Greek city of Cyrene. We spent every Christmas among its ruins, the only guests of a ghost of a hotel among fir trees. On Christmas Day, we made a ritual of bathing in a natural rock pool long and rectangular, with sides encrusted with mollusks and anemones, where once Cleopatra and, Roman, and the Romans reputedly swam. The waves broke against one end, and beyond them, beneath the surface, lay most of the remains of the classical city. When we dipped our masked faces into the water, there emerged on the corrugated sand mysterious traces of the outline of ancient streets and colonnades, their sanctity disturbed by the regular intrusion of giant rays, that flapped their wings somnolently among the broken columns as they drifted in from out of the shadowy gloom of deeper water. Fragments of sculpture, bases of fountains, became scattered around our flat, used as doorstops and bookends. So the reason I chose that was 
the book is, in a way, it's kind of anthology of writing, paintings, films, in a way, about, well, one aspect of it is um, about swimming. Um, but he intersperses those with personal accounts of particularly special swims for, from his own life, and that's the first of them. And I really enjoy those aspects of the book in particular, and it's all wonderful. Um, the other thing is it shows you just what a fabulous prose writer Charles Crawson is as well, quite the equal of anyone that he works. So, yes, those two... Um, aspects and it kind of sets out the the themes of the book as well um the the way that a lot of these swimmers particularly from from earliest times 18th 19th centuries the early days of open water swimming were inspired by classical ideals um swimming in in greek and roman times and this sort of dream they had of returning to some kind of classical ideal through swimming so john what about you It was my trigger, actually, into the book and uh, caught me. And it's just a short passage also about out of the introduction. And it refers to the first hero that Charles Sprawson had, the first swimmer hero, Murray Rose, an Australian athlete. And he talks about meeting him and then the description of his swimming experiences. And he is um, citing the, the con quoting this uh, conversation. The most intense experiences were early morning bays in Sydney Harbour, where the water was smooth, its texture silky, when swimming seemed like an adventure in a different world, particularly during Christmas when the swollen king tides rolled in from the Pacific. It was in these conditions that he felt he had swum his fastest times with a sense of acceleration that he never quite experienced in a man-made pool. For Rose, swimming was an intensely sensuous involvement a rhythmic succession of sounds as the hands cut through the water that passed under his body and formed a wave against the side of his face. Rhythm reduces effort. Before a race, he would listen to a particular music that was close to the rhythm of his stroke. Glenn Miller's In the Mood coincided exactly. What really uh, struck me was the sensitivity for and, and the grip and the feel for water that speaks out of these lines. And the second thing that caught me was how can you do crawl with Glenn Miller's In the Mood in your mind? That's the least I would think of. I thought, what's coming through my mind? And actually, to be true, to, at least today, it was the Russian national anthem. <laughs> I don't know why, but that fit my rhythm today. Brawson's book has been described as the best swim book ever written. Do you agree with that? And, and what do you think makes it so, James? I read somewhere that um, it's the only book that's ever been stolen from the International Swimming Hall of Fame in Fort Library in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So by that measure, it must be. It's certainly up there. It's still the first of the great wave that has come since of swimming books and talking about swimming as a cultural phenomenon rather than as a manual to learning it. It's very beautifully written, as I said, and it's very comprehensive in what he sets out to do, which is to, he's gathering all the sort of writing, um, thinking and uh, um, experience of swimming that has come before him in a way, um, gathering it all into one work. So it's, it's, it's like an encyclopedia of swimming in that sense. And I also like the way that he incorporates from the very outset swimming as a sport so it's not pu not purely as sort of well it is an aesthetic experience as well it's not purely an artist starts pretty much with the great sporting heroes of swimming um before going on to i mean perhaps we can talk at some point about what really the, the book is and what it isn't it certainly um isn't like the only way you can 
quite about swimming. Um, so it's not necessarily the, the, the sort of ultimate swing book necessarily. Um, if we just talk about the title for a minute, so it's called The Haunts of the Black Masseur, which is a very obscure title. I wonder what the publishers thought. So that, this is what the title is going to be. So how are we going to sell this? The title comes from a short story by Tennessee Williams, which is a very macabre story um, set in the bathhouses of New Orleans with this young uh, this, uh, white um, American clerk who's basically uh, pummeled by this gigantic and rather stereotypical black masseur. And it, it's a story of sort of sadomasochism and cannibalism, ultimately. So it's an extraordinary image with which to, 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 to set out in, in the book, although Scorson's talked about the black masseur being a, a sort of enveloping experience of the sea, and we all swam in tumultuous seas that have that effect. So it's kind of appropriate as well. So he's certainly a um, very sort of unique angle on, on swimming, which comes across with his, his own very unique and rather eccentric personality. So I don't know if you agree, John. Yeah, I agree perfectly. And I think the eccentric angle he is writing this cultural history of, of swimming is part of the charm um, of this book that, in a way, you, you sometimes have the feeling he's really crazy. The one thing that was kind of very seductive to me, I always thought of myself as someone who's crazy about swimming, but I had the feeling this person is even crazier than you. And that kind of was a comfort. And the second thing uh, is that I never had such a strong feeling that I have so many ancestors, that swimmers that swam before me, before reading the book. And, and so you get a sense of you stand a certain line or uh, in a certain sequence of generations or swimmers, and you're just part of a big movement. And as you said, James, it's very true that by now they are very many different voices, descriptions, uh, new angles to tell the swimming story, but he was kind of the first who broke the silence about swimming because as fishes, swimmers always are very silent. And if you ask them, how, how was it today? Yeah, good, good. Okay, mm, it was okay. And so there's not much to talk about. And now you have the words. John, you've adapted this book into German. Was that straightforward? And do you think there was much that was lost in translation? Yes, James said that uh, I'm very thankful that he mentioned the crazy title. And this was the first discussion I had with the publisher. It must be for British publishers are already very hard to sell a book with uh, the title Haunts of the Black Masseur and uh, kind of get the message across that it's about swimming and, and the cultural history of swimming. So in the, the German publisher's house, we had the discussion about do we have a German quote that in a way uh, catches the sense that you take some literature and open a, a bridge or an association to water. And so we took a, a German uh, quote from Goethe, typically German as well. And it's called, I translate it very badly, uh, I take you on my back and marry you to the ocean, which at least have a sense of you get, it's about swimming or about the ocean at least. Um, the subtitle is Cultural History of Swimming. The approach was a bit to get the Anglocentrism that's in the book. It's, it's like the British not only invented football and hiking, but also swimming. Uh, of course, he has the Roman and Greek episodes inside the book, but you get a strong sense of um, that it's quite a, a British invention. And so we kind of took the idea that we, we open it, all the references that are for German ears, very, very exotic. We tried to open it a bit, but I had the feeling that by in the core, there's such a sensual and intense uh, swimming experience that everyone shares. 
not only in Britain, but also in Germany, all across the world. So I think although these features are very specific and eccentric as well, in the core, it is a very international book for all swimmers. I'm going to go to a quote from uh, Sprawson's book, having mentioned the, the Romanticism and Goethe. This is from the chapter on German Romanticism. And the quote is, there's no evidence that the consumptive Schiller ever joined Goethe in the water. But his ballad, De Taucher, the diver, intensified the notion of the swimmer as someone rather remote and distinct, in touch with experiences and mysteries denied to the common man. Do you think in Germany there is still the sense of a, a romantic German swimmer? Yeah, good question. I think in Germany, the swimming in open water has a bit disappeared. And the romanticism is, of course, connected to swimming in landscapes and swimming through beautiful lakes. And it's not like you have a romantic experience in a pool unless you take it as a gender thing or a sexual thing. But that's not the sense of romantic we are talking about now. Actually, it's connected to swimming outdoors and, of, of course, in open water. In a very strange sense, uh, in East Germany, there's a big culture of swimming naked, and they have a very strong sense of defending their right to swim naked everywhere they can. But actually, romanticism is not, nothing that you kind of start with swimming. It's something you earn during the swim. It is kind of this getting a different level or having a different impression from your surroundings, from nature, from your relation to nature. And this comes in swimming. It's, it's not something... Not, it's not a picture, it's something you start to feel after a certain distance and a certain involvement with water. James, I know it's a broad generalization, but do you think outdoor swimmers in England are, are largely romantics? I think everything that John said was very much relevant to open water swimmers here as well. It's a form of expression that you realize when you start to open water swim. There's a sense of connection with your surroundings, with nature, and in a way, perhaps, as Sprawson puts it, a meditative sense as well, being able to connect with your inner self um, is something, I think, probably they're romantics while they're swimming. Perhaps when you get out, um, it's, a, it's a different story. You return to the dry land and the quotidian life. In I'll quote briefly again from Charles Sprawson's book from the chapter entitled The American Dream. This is in relation to John Cheever's short story The Swimmer, which traces a swimmer's decline from self-delusion to dissolution as he decides suddenly one Sunday afternoon to swim the eight miles back to his home across the pools of his neighbours, that quasi-subterranean stream that curves across the country. He imagines his swim as a romantic voyage into unknown waters, a form of nightly quest, moving from pool to pool as he awakens and the women a sense of something missing but there's more to life than brick barbecues and the best filters that money can buy there's an underlying sense of sensuousness as well as heroism that permeates charles sprawson's book this is a very special quality james would you agree Yes, I mean, it's not just the sensuousness of swimming, it's the sensuousness of the artistic works that he quotes as well and the, the, the what they're describing, but the, the way the poetic quality of prose that he, or the poems, in fact, that he, he quotes as well. So, and he was um, an art dealer, I believe, as well. So he always has that very fine aesthetic sense which permeates his, his whole life. And it's, in a way, it's a sort of, as a form of exercise, um, combines 
you know, strenuous exercise or, or not, case maybe always that sensuous feeling. So kind of doing hard work without really feeling it. I mean, I'm sure runners would disagree, but I don't get that sense of running at all. It's just a kind of hard, jolting slog. John, what do you think? The uh, short story of John Shiva is a very impressive story because a, a pool, as I, my, my short experiences in the US, suburban wealthy areas are that, that a pool is kind of the, the symbol of wealth and uh, of um, uh, having made it. And it's also a certain sadness that, that he kind of is out of the society and he kind of is the outsider that tries to connect pool to pool and swims through these symbols of wealth and success by being such in an, so far out from everything. I think this is something I really love in the book. It is in the middle, middle of our cultural um, history of swing, but it's also in a way far out and it has a certain melancholy and, and loneliness because in a way you carry, and probably this is romantic as well, you carry also not the sense of gaining something, you carry a sense of loss as well. And what you gain is just a kind of a certain quality of experience, a very intense moment in the water. But you also are very conscious that this is a quite unshared experience because, I mean, what I ask myself after every swim is, why doesn't everybody do it? You are so often alone in the water. I'm not complaining. I like to be alone in the water, but I, I don't really get it. Why is such a small number of people doing it? Frawson believed that swimming appealed to the introverted and eccentric individualists involved in a mental world of their own. To what extent do you think that's so, James? Well, this is another thing I found particularly interesting in the book. It, the subtitle of it is is the swimmer as hero, which makes you kind of question what is a hero in a way? Are these swimmers heroes? Well, the hero is the casting themselves as a kind of protagonist of their own private drama. So they're certainly heroes in that sense. On the other hand, they're, they're narcissistic, very solipsistic. The people that he's talking about, and there's a sense of kind of elitism. You do get, there's rather an endless parade of English public schools, which having been to one, I rather wearied of. I was quite relieved to go to America and Japan and other places later on in the book. For, heroism for me is, is doing something remarkable for other people which hardly any of these people do i think there is another definition where people who are really trailblazers and do something uh, kind of, and in a way the idea of swimming the channel makes it possible that other people might swim the channel so i think matthew webb is a hero and lynn cox is certainly a hero and so swimmers who've really done exceptional things and there, there's a certain kind of political dimension what she's done as well connecting cultures and countries so these people are, are heroic. The swimmers in Sprawson's book are heroic in a very particular sense. And I think probably was the case with the early swimmers that he talks about. Now, I think a lot of, I mean, I agree totally with what John was saying about your experience of swimming on your own, but also that there's this kind of explosion of interest in open water swimming very recently. A lot of that is to do with the kind of communal experience of it. I mean, a lot of people do get into it. It's still a minority sport, very much so, but people enjoy sharing that experience. There is that aspect of it as well as the, the kind of solitary meditative as aspects of swimming as well so it's true and it certainly was true then perhaps now it's, it's less so um, interesting in that, that kind of current of human behavior and experience that discussing in the book. Actually, I, I would say in, that if you're not special or strange or eccentric in a way before you swim, then you become eccentric, special and curious by swimming. Um, so this is some kind of mutual response thing that uh, swimming forms you. It's not that you are formed this and this way and, and then uh, you become a swimmer. And this is probably the reason why you become a swimmer.
swimmer, but you also are formed by swimming. Your body is shaped by swimming and your mentality and the way you look on the world is formed by swimming. And my picture for that would be when you are crawling and you're a crawl swimmer, then you have just a short look at the outside of the surface and uh, what's what's there. And the most of the time you're looking into the deep. And this is kind of a way of viewing the world. And if you are not viewing the world already, when you start crawling for long distance, then you start looking at the world this way. I'll read another extract from Haunts of the Black Mousseur, again from the American Dream chapter, this time in relation to water and environmental fragility. Nowadays, Southern California appears a paradise of water. The myriads of pools and fountains, gushing pumps, irrigation channels and green sprinkled lawns create a deceptive atmosphere. God never intended Southern California to be anything but desert. Sprawson's observations about Southern California echo some of the very real and current environmental issues surrounding water. John, what's going on with the drought in Germany? Droughts, floods, everything seems to be very biblical. Yeah, it's, it's a phase of very extreme weather. Of course, everybody's talking about climate change and politicians are doing so in every talk show. But uh, since 2018, actually, we have a very heavy drought in the, in the summer, very many woods burning. And my friends from California, as you quoted, they visited us and they said to me, we know that smell. We never thought we would meet it in Germany. It's a Californian smell of burning woods. And it doesn't really smell like burning wood, but smells like plastic, like burning plastic, like garbage burning. This is quite frightening. And actually, this year, we have a, a different scenario. We have the, the scenario of flooding, as you said, almost biblically. What happened before was that the water was getting warmer and warmer in such a high-speed manner as I never experienced it before. This time, we had 12 degrees water temperature, and after three days, we had 22. So it was a 10 degree Celsius increase in three days and such a very heavy sun exposure. And what is happening here is that the water surface of all the lakes is kind of going down and down and down. You see, when, when you get to the um, beach, you, you kind of see that the water was at a certain stage one year ago and you see where it's now and you see where it's going. So actually water is something very valuable and this value we are kind of destroying all the time and in Germany it's in a way vanishing and the rain is not part of the solution. The rain that is coming is such a heavy rain that it's part of the problem. And the problem is the soil can't take up this rain anymore because it comes so sudden and so heavily that it's kind of washing all the dirt and all the garbage into the water. So it's destroying the water more than it helps the water. There are changes that we observe in the open waters that they're not all benign. They're things that cause some worry, especially for outdoor swimmers people who can really see what is going on in nature. John, what are your views on this? Yeah, actually, I think every open water swimmer is in contact with nature in a special sense that, uh, in a way, I think that swimming balances you uh, in your relation to nature, that you get a sense of proportion. As James said when saying, uh, when talking about swimming in the sea, he said uh, that you, you get a sense of the forces and the power of the, the ocean. I think in every swim, you sense that there is an element which is so much stronger than you, and you are kind of, by the mercy of this element, you survive. 
This is a sense of proportion, which is good to have in mind when talking about measures to, to preserving water, to preserving nature, that you get a sense where I stand, where you stand as a human being. And I think over our biggest sin, so to speak, is our overestimation, the overestimation of human progress. And actually, swimming is kind of a humble thing where you're just kind of by your body trying to get a connection and not the kind of trying to domesticize the water in a very pure sense. And so I think if we send all our politicians open water swimming for just one day, we would have a better political agenda afterwards. James? John put it very well, the main points, but I think open water swimmers can't help but be aware of the negative effects of um, environmental change and environmental degradation and to, to be actively concerned by those problems which affects everybody. You could say you're sort of like a canary in the coal mine in a way. If you're fortunate enough, for example, to swim somewhere where you've got coral reefs, you'll notice coral bleaching perhaps, but even in England, we have things like jellyfish blooms or algal blooms that are, that are related to the destruction of the, the fisheries or the marine environment. And swimmers, obviously, like open water swimmers, even those who enjoy cold water swimming, enjoy that part of the year when the water get, gets warm again. But when it becomes alarmingly warm, you know something is seriously. And to obviously some plastic in the water and on the beach and, and if anywhere you're swimming. In this country, I don't know if it's the same in Germany, is terrible problems with um, massive public water companies flushing raw sewage into the places we swim. And I swim in the Thames quite often, and whenever there's a heavy downfall, which being England is fairly frequent, we are notified that um, raw sewage has been discharged in, into the river, which is disgraceful. Yes, absolutely. Open water swimmers, they're very aware of these problems. John Van Duffel, James Norton, thank you so much for coming on Swimming Pod. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.